How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Give you the opportunity to make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit and ready to study the Word this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to study your word, to let our souls be refreshed and renewed by the truth of your word that is the basis for our continued growth in the spiritual life. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, you'd help us to understand what we study and to make clear application of it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every now and then somebody sends me a little humor on the Internet that I want to share with everybody. Sometimes it's just because you, you, somebody tells you a joke. It's so bad you just have to tell somebody else so you can get rid of it. But these are some uh, Christian one-liners. Many folks want to serve God, but only as advisors. One that fits with our theme of creation, the good Lord didn't create anything without a purpose, but mosquitoes come close. Now, have you noticed the problem this summer around here? One that strikes a little close to home, opportunity may knock once, but temptation bangs on your front door continuously. And the one phrase that is guaranteed to wake up an audience, and in conclusion... And then one that is true for so many, a lot of church members who are singing Standing on the Promises are just sitting on the premises. All right, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, I want to go over a passage we looked at quickly last time, perhaps too quickly, and, and, you know, this happens to you, it happens to me. You look at one page or one verse on the page in your eye, just doesn't go where it needs to go, so I need to correct something I said last time, and then we will move on. Now, for those of you who are visitors, we covered during the last two classes the doctrine related to the origin of human life and the transmission of the soul. Now, this is a complicated doctrine, and so what I'm going to give you in the next couple of minutes is just the tail end of what we covered and spent two weeks uh, setting up and developing, so if it leaves you confused, I guess you'll just have to get the last couple of tapes. But we're looking at the issue of when is the soul united to the human body. And the principle that we have seen, based on Genesis 2-7, is that when God originally created Adam, he created him with a human body 
that he made or formed as a potter formed something from the clay of the soil. He had a human body, and then God breathed into him the breath of life, neshma, which is soul life, and it is the union of the human body with the soul life that produces full human life. Until you had that union of soul life and human body, you don't have true human life. And then the question that we raise, which is a question that has been debated down through the centuries, is this a unique procedure because it is the first creation, or is it a creation, a creation modus operandi that God continues to use? We saw numerous passages in Scripture that document the fact that the human body is continued to be created immediately throughout human history, and this is through what God has designed through procreation, and the soul life is created by God immediately because the soul life is immaterial and cannot be transmitted through material means. So this is the position that is known in history as creationism. Now, that term creationism is used to define two different doctrines. One relates to the creation of God in terms of a six-day creation or restoration in Genesis chapter 1 as opposed to evolution. And then it is also used to describe a doctrine that God individually creates each soul and imparts it to the human body. Historically, that has been at birth. And it is opposed to the doctrine called traditionism, which was the doctrine that was uh, developed initially by a man named Tertullian in the 3rd century A.D. And Tertullian held to a material view of the soul. So he, of course, could hold to a view of material transmission of the soul. And this was uh, called heresy, I stated, by even such a great Roman Catholic theologian as Thomas Aquinas back in the uh, Middle Ages. In order to, and he said it was heresy to think that the soul could be transmitted uh, physically. Now, this position has numerous problems, and there are many people who... who I knew at seminary, there were Hebrew scholars and New Testament Greek scholars that had been creationists, but as soon as you had the judicial decision Roe v. Wade back in about 1973, I think, they immediately assumed that this position somehow validated abortion, so they jumped ship and jumped over to the tradition model. And that has become a dominant view among many evangelicals for the last uh, what is it, 20, uh, 30 years, that has been a dominant view, but it is not thought through, and there are many questions that need to be raised and many exegetical issues that need to be resolved. And last time we concluded by looking at some of the problem passages, and two of the problem passages are in Luke 1. The first one I pointed out last time has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit on John uh, in the womb, it says, in some translations, literally, it is the Greek word ek koilea, or from the womb, which is based on the Hebrew, Hebrew terminology mebeten, which is not, does not indicate life in the womb, but is outside of the womb. And this is indicated by the accurate translation 
and it does have a few accurate translations in the New International Version. The New International Version, which I've said before, was a translation by committee. The NIV is not consistent. Some committees were dominated by certain viewpoints, and so in some places you have the terminology me-betten, that's the Greek word. The, it's a combination of the Hebrew preposition men plus the word betten for womb, M-I-N plus betten, B-E-T-E-N, and when they're joined together, you lose the N, and it's just pronounced mebetin. And that word is sometimes translated literally as from the womb, yet I showed through usage that this is made up of a preposition plus a noun object of the preposition. In Hebrew, if you were going to make the statement from birth, where you have the preposition from, and the noun object birth, there is no noun for birth in Hebrew. There's a verb for birth in Hebrew, but no noun. Therefore, they used a circumlocution, that is a substitute, which was an idiomatic phrase, uh, from the womb. And in the NIV, about half the time they translated literally from the womb, and the other half the time the translators recognized that it was an idiom, and they translated it from birth, as they did in Luke chapter 1, recognizing the problem I pointed out last time, and that is that it is would be the only case in human history where a human being, under the curse of Adam's sin, born with the sin nature and Adam's original sin imputed to it, was filled with the Holy Spirit prior to a decision to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And that that phrase, from the womb or from birth in uh, Luke chapter 1 cannot be understood as being inside the womb. This is a major problem for many people who want to have full human life inside the womb. But on the other hand, uh, what they will point out is that uh, those of us who do not believe that there is full human life in the womb, they will go to Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and following, and they will say that we've got a problem there because of uh, what happens with John the Baptist uh, when he's in the womb of Elizabeth. And so in Luke one forty one we read, And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So there is an external sound. There's the greeting of Mary's voice, and there is this reflex action of fetal movement, fetal motility uh, in the womb. Now, then we go on, we see that she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is an endowment of the Holy Spirit that in these contexts usually precedes some kind of a uh, statement. So in Luke one forty two we read, And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, that is talking to Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That would refer to the humanity of Jesus and the, the physical body of Jesus being formed in the womb of Mary. And then in Luke one forty three, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Now, when you read that phrase in the Greek, or when you read that phrase in the English, it looks as if the baby's leaping is caused by joy. This is that preposition 
for, which in English is a multifunctional preposition. It can be used in a number of different contexts. But what we have here is an interesting phraseology in the Greek. It is not the normal word that one would expect for joy, which is the word kara. It is the preposition in plus the uh, Greek word angaliadza, yadze, e n a g i a l or a g a l i a z i a, and this is another word for exuberance or exultation. For exuberance or exaltation, that should, excuse me, A-G-G-A-G-A-L-L-I-A-S-E-I. Okay, that's got it spelled right. Today was one of those days that always happens when you're going to teach something. You get in the vortex of the angelic conflict. I had a hard drive crash. Then when I went to print my notes, the printer wouldn't work. When I finally got it printed, it wouldn't print my Greek right, so I'm having to translate from really strange-looking English and think about what those word, those uh, uh, symbols indicate on a Greek text. So it's a little more confusing than normal. Okay, in agaliase. And this is a word that is used of exultation in the Psalms to translate the word joy when the context is salvation. So that, of course, relates to the fact that uh, the Messiah is coming and it, there is joy because of his coming. But this phrase, in, does not have the idea of cause. We've seen this in many passages, uh, the most important of which is Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not because of faith, which would be a preposition dia plus the accusative. It is the phrase dia plus a, a, a uh, a genitive. And when you have dia plus the accusative, that expresses cause. Dia plus a genitive indicates uh, intermediate means um, through faith in Ephesians 2.8. Now, so here we don't have a dia plus the accusative, which expresses causation. What we have is n plus the dative, which usually indicate some kind of means or instrumentality, but even that is an unusual idea in this kind of a context. And according to the latest edition, the third edition of the Greek lexicon uh, that's referred to as Bauer Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, or uh, BDAG as, as seminary students refer to it, uh, that this usage is the marker of circumstance or the condition under which something takes place. So this is the condition of joy under which the leaping takes place. So the joy then is not necessarily that is the mother. See, the English translation makes it look as if this is the, I mean, that the joy is not necessarily that of the, of the fetus. The English translation makes it look like the baby is, um, is having joy. But that's a particularly troubling concept on a number of fronts. And just from the vantage point of medical science, and I'm not sure where medical science stands on this today, if you read a lot in brain uh, development literature, it changes every six or eight months. So I'm not sure where things are today. But the view that the, this, this uh, fetus, which is less than six months 
uh, along in its development at this time is has the brain connections to respond um, emotionally. Now, I'm not saying to respond physically, but I'm saying to respond emotionally is somewhat uh, dubious. I do know that several years ago, it was very popular, most of you will remember this, it was very popular for mothers to start playing Mozart or other classical music when they were pregnant because this would help with uh, the brain development of, of the fetus, hopefully. And even after birth, many do that. And it is a good idea after a few weeks, but I read a very uh, detailed critique of this uh, some years ago that actually the connections necessary for the brain to really assimilate and respond to that music aren't there until about the fifth or sixth week after birth. So what I'm saying is there's not all of the uh, connections are there in the brain in order for there to be true, full emotion. So we have some basic problems related to the whole concept that this uh, this six-month-old fetus is responding with joy, uh, both from a from what we know about science, and that, of course, could be faulty, but also on the basis of the Greek grammar. So whenever you have a problem passage, and trust me, every position that somebody takes on what the Bible teaches has some passage that people will point out is somewhat difficult to understand, and this is why you have to go into the Greek and the Hebrew and the syntax, why you have to use a principle in hermeneutics known as the analogy of faith, or what we usually call comparing Scripture with Scripture, so that you can come to understand this. Now, when we, go, we have taken the time that we have already to go through the numerous passages related to understanding the concept of life and the parameters of life being birth to death and not conception to death, then it becomes clear that this would be in marked contrast. And I think one of the most important uh, observations of Scripture that's been made, and you, and you never see anyone really deal with it, is the fact that in the Hebrew, there is clear verbiage. They had the verbal tools to express the idea of from conception to death as the parameters of life, and yet it's never used. What is used is the terminology from womb to tomb, from birth to death, again and again and again. We're not to be conceived again. We're to be born again. So it becomes clear then from numerous passages in Job, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in John uh, chapter 3, that the parameters for life in the Scripture are always expressed in terms of birth to death. Never once is it even implied that it's from conception to death. Although, as I pointed out in conclusion last time, as we studied Psalm 139, that does not mean that the fetus should be treated as if it's, it's not a dog in there, it's not a cat, it's not a wart, it's, it's pre-human life. It is, this is a view that goes back to the early church called the nascent life view. And that is that under given all circumstances being equal, that physical human life, or excuse me, that biological life in the womb will develop into full human life at birth, and therefore it is something that is extremely serious to interfere with its development. But 
On the other hand, since the soul is not present until birth, then it's clear that it's not the same as murder because it's not full human life yet. So the implications for this in the abortion debate, as I stated last time, are that there should not be a law equating abortion with murder. But on the other hand, this does not mean that you can just go out and use abortion as some sort of last-minute birth control method uh, willy-nilly as if all you're doing is... uh, uh, you know, clipping off an excess of fingernail or cutting your hair or removing a wart. There is something significant there that God is involved in, even though it is an, uh, an intermediate uh, involvement or immediate involvement, as we said last time. So let's go back to our passage in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and continue our study in Genesis 2. Now, we have stopped and paused for two weeks on Genesis 2-7 to look at the issue of the origin and transmission of human life. But that is not the only subject that's here. The next issue that we need to address developing from this verse is the answer to the question, what is man? What is man? So let's review the verse, and the Lord God, emphasis on the Lord as Yahweh, the creator of Israel, and the one who is in a covenant relationship with Israel, therefore bringing into play at this stage a moral quality to God. Now I hesitate to use the word moral because it's not, when it's applied to God, it's not the same as human morality. Let's review the character of God. He is sovereign, He is righteous, and He is just. And we'll just stop there. What I'm referring to when I use that idea of morality is that God is a holy God. And that word holy is overused, so it doesn't have a whole lot of significance or meaning in our everyday language. It is a word that has to do with the fact that God is set apart. He is unique in His righteousness and His justice. So we refer to that as part of his integrity. God is holy. He is righteous and just, which means righteousness is the absolute standard of his character. It is absolute perfection. And justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. And what we are saying here is that the term, the, the Hebrew tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the proper name of God, is directly related in the mind of the Jew to the Mosaic covenant that God has given to Israel. That mo- the covenant is preceded by a preamble, like the preamble to our Constitution, that is, uh, we call the ten words, or literally, that's what it's called in the Hebrew, the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. So God has one commandment. He's about to give Adam in Genesis 2. But in Exodus, he has ten commandments that precede the giving of the Mosaic Law. So when the Jews thought of Yahweh, they thought of his covenant, which imposed the righteous standards of God on people. So whenever you see the use of the term Yahweh in the Scripture, what's the the baggage that that word is carrying, or part of the baggage that that's carrying, is this quality of righteousness. 
that when God creates man, see, when he creates everything over in Genesis 1, never uses the name Yahweh. But when we get to the details of man's creation in Genesis 2, there's a shift in the terminology for God, and Yahweh is now used, and it brings in the fact that there is a moral mandate placed inherently upon man as the image of God. So we read, and and Yahweh God, Yahweh Elohim, formed, that is Yatser, physically, the physical act of forming something from the uh, soil, from the clay, from the chemicals of the, of the soil, formed man, this is Adam, from the dust of the ground, and that is the formation of biological life. And then he breathed Nishma, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this is the next key word we're going to have to look at here, and this is uh, uh, the word for soul in the Hebrew. looks like this, nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H. And in the Septuagint, which is abbreviated LXX for 70, because the legend was that 70, 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the Pentateuch from Hebrew into Greek in the city of Alexandria in Egypt, because the, this was during the about 200 years before the time of Christ, because the Jews there had forgotten how to read Hebrew. So that's why it's called the Septuagint, Sept meaning 70, so it's usually abbreviated LXX. And we learn a lot about how Jews thought about Old Testament words and how they correlated Old Testament terminology to New Testament terminology. So the word that they translated nephesh with was the Greek word suke, which we usually transliterate. P-S-Y-C-H-E. This upsilon is transliterated like a Y in many cases unless it's the first letter in the word. So we have nefesh and suke. These are important words that we tend to translate into English as with the English word soul. And this brings up a problem that we will begin to develop and investigate as we go through uh, our study this evening. Now, we are answering the question from this verse, what is man? The psalmist asks, what is man? Ask the Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, but he will be elevated eventually above the angels. A profound verse that we will uh, eventually bring into this discussion. Why is it important to begin here with understanding man? Now, I have said this again and again, and this congregation is well trained to think this way, that if we're going to investigate any arena of knowledge, whether we're going to go out and study trees and study dendrology, or whether we're going to study the oceans and the ocean currents and uh, a study of oceanography, incidentally, it was a believer in the mid-19th century, who discovered ocean currents. And he did that because of his reading of the paths in the sea in a passage in Job. I don't remember the passage precisely 
or the man's name right now, but he was a man who taught down at the Naval Academy. And he read that there were pads in the sea in Job. And so he went out and investigated the oceans and discovered that there were indeed currents, paths like the Gulf Stream in, in the oceans. And so it is when people are thinking within the context of the Scripture that they can go out and investigate nature and investigate the world around us and have certain boundaries set. They're not just out there willy-nilly doing whatever they want to and interpreting the data any way in which they want to. When we ask the question, what is man, we have to start with the Scripture. We can't start with our experience. We can't start with sociological studies. We can't start with our human observations. Why? Because our human observations are always going to be limited and affected by the fact that we are sinners with an orientation to rebellion against God and to a rejection of God's absolutes. Now, that does not mean that empiricism and rationalism do not have their place, do not have some value and do not have some significance, but they must operate within the framework of revelation. So we could chart it this way, that you have revelation from God, which gives us information about the planet, about mankind, about human history, and about God's plans and purposes. And this is going to establish certain boundaries. Those boundaries cannot be discerned through human senses. You can't learn about them through empiricism. Empiricism is the idea that I can come to absolute truth through a study of, of what I learn through the senses, through, through sight, sound, uh, touch, taste, the basics for the scientific methodology. That I can't come to an absolute knowledge of everything through rationalism, which is the idea that starting with thinking alone, I can somehow arrive at absolute truth. That's the difference between rationalism and empiricism. And then we have what happens when empiricism and rationalism go to seed. You always have mysticism. And mysticism is the idea that I just sort of intuitively know what truth is. I just have these intuitive hot flashes, and we know what truth is. And this is uh, what happens in a lot of, uh, for a lot of people. They just think they intuitively uh, know what the truth is. Now, the, what happens as a result of the fall is that man, fallen man, rejects. He blocks out special revelation of Scripture so that he's left with empiricism, rationalism, and mysticism operating independently. Now, let me give you an illustration of this from this second chapter of Genesis that we'll see. When God creates Adam and he places Adam in the garden, Let's say God didn't give him any revelation. All Adam has is his unfallen, unaffected five senses and his reason. Better than any that we have. Better reason, better understanding, better knowledge, better mentality, higher intelligence than any of us have. Now, under this idea, Adam is set in the garden, and Adam can go out and he can investigate all the trees. He can investigate all the animals. He could come up with many different conclusions based on his observations of the data. 
But you know, there's one conclusion he couldn't come up by observing the data. He couldn't learn that by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. He could only learn that from observation, I mean from revelation. So observation is good to a point, but it is limited. There are certain things that we can only know because they are revealed to us by God. So reason and empiricism operate within the boundaries established by revelation. So whenever we get into any field of study, whether it's biology, oceanography, psychology, which is the study of the human soul, not what we think of in terms of Freudian psychology, uh, but a, a true psychology or biblical psychology, a study of the soul, anthropology, any of these things, we have to start with a biblical anthropology. That is a biblical understanding of man and his nature. And what we see is that this affects many areas of study. It affects biology. If you study biology without taking into account the fact that man is created from the dust of the soil, as God says, then you're going to have a skewed view of biology at some level. There are many things you can discover in biology that are true. You can discover viruses. You can study bacteria. You can study uh, cancer and the solutions to cancer. You can learn about antibiotics. You can learn all kinds of things. But there are they're always going to be interpreted within a skewed framework because the man that you are studying, the biology of the human being that you are studying, is a human being that just happened by chance as opposed to a human being that was specifically and intentionally created by God about four or 5,000 years before Christ. It affects anthropology, which is a branch of sociology and the study of man and the the uh, development of humanity. It affects sociology, which is a prominent study today and a source of much error in human thought. Sociology uh, affects all kinds of social structures, such as political organizations and government and, and how uh, labor relates to management and political systems, management systems, uh, administrative systems, how companies and organizations run. If you go and analyze anything from our, our military to any corporation in America, what you will discover is that people, especially at the management level, are exposed to seminar after seminar after seminar that is grounded on a human viewpoint concept of what makes man tick? What motivates man? What makes man? And there may be a certain amount of truth there. Just as the biologist can come up with a certain amount of truth in biology, but his, if he's an evolutionist, it's always within the wrong framework, and so the data is always distorted. The same thing with uh, sociology in sales. If you are in sales, salesmen are exposed to enormous amounts of human viewpoint uh, garbage based on uh, the fact that they have to be out there uh, motivating people to buy their product, that's all based on a certain understanding of human psychology. But it's a human psychology of a creature that is a product of time plus chance and that is maybe material-based only. And so much of the problems that you have in, uh, in sales psychology it comes out of a human viewpoint concept of man, except most salesmen that I know go out, and this is one of the reasons they have problems in their spiritual life, is from Monday through Friday they're operating day in and day out on a view of man that is slightly skewed and based on certain Freudian concepts, certain other material concepts of the soul, whatever it may be, 
And then they come to church and they hear something else and they've got two different, two competing models of man in their soul and they don't even know it. And they're, they're basically in, in, in this tremendous uh, conflict intellectually. And what usually happens is human viewpoint wins out, and I can't tell you how many times I've had trouble in churches in the past where I pastored where you get somebody who's a deacon in the church who has been drilled by this kind of thinking in his secular world, and he brings that all with him into the church, and he tries to apply salesmanship techniques to evangelism, to church growth, and, and all it is is, a, is bringing an evolutionary-based concept of man into the church. So anthropology is effect, sociology, social structures, marriage and family, marriage problems. You start having problems with any marriage, where do you go for counseling? You go to a marriage counselor. Well, what's their frame of reference? What's their model of human behavior? It's derived from empirical data, not from the scriptures. So you have problems there. Uh, family issues such as discipline of children, how you rear up a child, how you even educate a child, that gets into the whole concept of educational philosophy, must be grounded on a biblical understanding of the soul and how man learns. There must be a biblical view of learning, a biblical view of language and the limitations of language and the purpose of language, a biblical view of human psychology and what's going on in the human soul and how the sin nature affects the human soul. All of this is foundational, and yet we never see too many people that investigate these things from a scriptural framework. And then we get into another part of this subject in this chapter as we look at man's relationship to nature because he is set over nature. And we see that there's quite a difference between the human viewpoint concept of man and the divine viewpoint concept of man. So we'll set up two columns here. And on the left column, we always want to make sure that that which is uh, uh, wrong or an error is on the left side. Got to have a little, glad to see somebody's awake here. And, of course, that which is true and correct is going to be on the right side. So we have a divine viewpoint on the right, human viewpoint on the left. Now, in a human viewpoint paganism that goes all the way back to the ancient world, you can trace this back to ancient Babylon and Assyria, the idea that there is a continuity of being. And perhaps if I can pull all my studies together before we get out of Genesis uh, 2, I may do a presentation on the continuity of being as a major idea in human history. This goes back to the ancient Babylonians. It can go, be traced as far back as we have any written records. It was a major idea in the metaphysics of uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. It's a major idea in the metaphysics of the um, uh, rationalists and empiricists of the Enlightenment. It's a major concept underlying the economic theories of Marx. It's a major concept underlying all of, of course, everything that Darwin came up with and of Freud. And this is the idea that there's no major distinction between anything in nature and man and God. And I'm going to write God up here in lowercase g. And what we have here, I'm going to circle all three of these that as we go up this chain of being from nature to man to God, there's only a difference in complexity and a difference in kind. But there is no difference in degree. 
There is, I mean, excuse me, there's a difference in degree, but not a difference in kind, so that they're all part of the same chain. The only difference between the gods and man is the gods have more power and more ability. Go back and look at ancient Greek mythology. The gods are prone to all of the same foibles and failures and flaws as any human being, but they're blown up in their magnitude. They're just much greater. Their powers are greater, but they're still human beings just written large. And man is just another extension of nature. Ultimately, there's no difference between man. He's just another animal, another biological creature. You've all studied that. That was drilled into you as you came up in elementary school, as it was with me, that man is an animal. He's just another kind of animal. That's the whole continuity or chain of being idea. Yet this is not what the Bible teaches in terms of divine viewpoint. In terms of divine, uh, a human viewpoint, man then is part of nature. Okay, we'll draw nature here with a circle. And man is just another cog in all of nature. He's part of nature. And this idea has radical implications on how you view the environment and technology and the use of nature in technology. Whereas the biblical view, divine viewpoint, what you have is the creator-creature distinction. We'll abbreviate that CCD. And this has the creator here and the creator. I'm going to draw a line under creator because he is wholly and completely distinct from his creation. This is the biblical teaching of ex nihilo creation, that there is a distinction between the creator and the creature, and they are not the same. There may be certain uh, analogs or analogies between the creator and the creature, but they are not the same. They are completely different in kind. And in the creation, you have two distinctions. You have the animals and and the rest of nature on one level, but over them, completely separate, you have man. He is unique in all of creation. He is not another animal. There may be some similarities, but there are some radical differences. Man is not uh, something that's just a little better than a chimpanzee or a primate. Man is completely different and distinct from animals in nature. In fact, the Bible teaches that man was set over nature to rule nature and to have dominion over nature. So if we're going to have a biblical view of man and a biblical view of nature and uh, the environment, then we have to make sure that we are understanding this within a divine viewpoint uh, framework. Now, of course, whenever we get into studies like this, we always have to be careful that we don't bring with it, with our study or into our study, a certain amount of baggage. And this always happens when we start talking about man because one of the first things that comes up is a discussion of this word soul. Man becomes a living soul. And I already pointed out that the Hebrew word is nefesh, and the Hebrew word is suke. Now, this word suke is a real blight on our understanding. If you are a Western, you're of Western European descent, either physically or intellectually, then you have been infected by a false view of the soul. 
and suke. And that is because we are all heirs of the intellectual tradition of the Greeks, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. And Plato had a certain view of the soul that really dominated later Greek thought. It became a major problem in Gnosticism and Docetism, as we've studied in our our series in, in, in uh, the Johannine Epistles on Sunday morning, that the Gnostics saw this dualism and separation between what they called spirit and matter. And in... Uh, they're thinking spirit was good and matter was inherently evil. So the soul, the suke in Platonic and Neoplatonic thought is in the realm of the spirit up here. And Plato had the idea of pre-existent souls. Now there were some early Christians that tried to make that work, but it doesn't. Pre-existent souls. See that what they were doing was bringing their Platonic baggage with them into Christianity. And see, if you have a pre-existent soul, there's one important implication from that. One important implication. There's a number of them, but there's one key one. One I want to key in on, and that is that the soul can exist without the body. I want you to think about that. If you've got a pre-existent soul, that is sometime way back there, God creates all the souls, and you've got a bunch of little, little souls hanging around heaven waiting for a body to come out, and then God places that in the body. That was Plato's idea. He didn't have God there, but he had birth there, and then they would, be, uh, in, they would get a body. So that gets the idea that the soul is somehow the really important thing and the body is less significant. Now, that's why you get to this idea in later Platonism, Gnosticism, and and Docetism, that matter is evil. See, the body is material, so it's evil. The soul is spiritual, so it's going to be good. And it's joined to this body. But see, the implication of this is that the physical is not important. The body really isn't important. And so the error in this is it downplays the importance of the body. Now, how did that affect thought? Well, in the early church, it affected thought in monasticism. Monasticism was heavily influenced by this whole idea of, uh, uh, from, from Neoplatonism. And so that affects their view of sex. See, God creates Adam and Isha from the very beginning to enjoy sexual relations as something that is pleasurable and is not merely functional. That is, not merely for the purpose of having children. But in medieval thought, in early, the early Middle Ages and, and some early church fathers picked up this idea from Platonism that anything associated with the body is not that good, so therefore sex isn't that good, and it should be restricted to only uh, producing uh, an offspring, and if you have sex for pleasure, that's a sin, because that's anything that's associated with physical bodily pleasure is inherently sinful. So that's how all of this play, you know, ideas have consequences, and they work themselves out over time. So we have to recognize and be very careful how we handle the idea of soul because we don't want to pick up this sort of autonomous idea from Plato that the soul can have an independent, non-bodily association. 
and we'll see how that works out as we go through um, as we go through our study. Okay, all of that by way of introduction. I want to start this evening with four observations on the nature of man. We will probably only get through the first one or two, and then we'll get into the next two next time. Four observations on the nature of man, the fourth of which is going to be an understanding of the soul and the dynamics of the soul. But the first point is man's unique creation. The first observation is man's unique creation. When we look at this in terms of divine viewpoint and human viewpoint, what we see over here in human viewpoint is that man is the product of chance plus time. He just happens. You're just a cosmic gamble. And look, you just happen to win the crapshoot and you're here. And there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no validity. That's why you have so many uh, children today and young people today who are in depression, who want to shoot up schools and get involved in all kinds of uh, drugs and all kinds of activities that weren't problems 50 years ago is because they're drilled by, by and in science and in English classes with literature that comes out of this dark, depressive framework that, that life is just a product of chance and has no meaning of value or purpose. And so then uh, what the solution then is to just kind of psychologically bump them up with some sort of psychological uh, tool, some gimmick, in order to make them feel better. So the solution then is to uh, have them develop self, a self-image a good self-image, and I don't like to use that word in any positive sense because the origin of that terminology is in human psychology. It has nothing to do with the Bible, and it had to do with man developing uh, a good view of himself based on the idea that man is inherently, inherently good. And see, one thing we learn from Scripture is you have to be careful of the language you use because language carries with it a certain amount of bagage, as the French say, and we all have to watch out what kind of bagage we're going to carry with us into uh, our thought world. So self-image is the emphasis in human viewpoint, and in contrast to this, in divine viewpoint, what we have is the image of God. The image of God, or as the early theologians expressed it in Latin, the imago dei. The image of God is expressed in, in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, that mankind, including male and females, created in the image of God. For the believer, here's the principle, for the believer, the issue is not self-image, The issue is the image of God or the image of Christ. You see, what happens at the fall is that image of God is marred and distorted and corrupted by sin. It is not destroyed. It is not erased. It is simply corrupted. But at regeneration, there is a new birth, a spiritual birth. And then for the church-age believer, there is a renewal that takes place as you grow and advance in Scripture. And this is uh, the image of Christ. Colossians 3.10 says that we have put on the new self that comes at regeneration, your new creature in Christ, who is being renewed to a true knowledge According to kata plus the accusative, according to a standard. What's the standard? 
according to the image of the one who created him. So we are being renewed to that image, and in the context of Colossians, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 8:29, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So see, there is a renewal of that image taking place through progressive sanctification as you mature and grow in, in the spiritual life. So the contrast is in human viewpoint, you focus on a self-image and pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, telling yourself over and over again that you're really good and wonderful and you uh, people ought to love you and like you because you're so great and wonderful. And God says, no, you're not. You are a fallen sinner and you're, a, you're in rebellion against me, but I created you in my image and it's that image that needs to be focused on and renewed uh, uh, through the study of God's Word. And as the image of God is created in us through the Holy Spirit, as that is developed and renewed, then we advance in Scripture, and our confidence is not a self-confidence, it is a God-confidence. So we advance forward. Now, this shows that there is a importance to man that is based not on who and what man is or what he does. It's not based on a utilitarian idea. What do I mean by a utilitarian idea? That it's functional. In other words, your value isn't based on what you do. Your value isn't based on your success or failure. Your value is based on the fact that you were created in the image and likeness of God, and even though you're born a fallen sinner and corrupt, you still bear that image. That gives you value because of who you are as a human being, not based on what you do or don't do. So we have to understand this concept of the image of God. Now, we have to be careful because we, we always get into this and we get to Greek we carry that Platonic thought over, and we want to think of the image of God as primarily immaterial. What's the makeup of the image? We want to think it's primarily immaterial, but it is in the Bible. It is both immaterial and material. Now, there are two errors here we have to watch out for. As soon as I said that, somebody said, well, does that mean that my God looks like my body? No, it doesn't. Let me say that up front. Running out of time. I may not get all of this covered. What I mean is the image is the totality of man. The image is the totality of man. Now, there are two errors that people have slipped into over the years. The first error is that the image is the physical body of the human being the physical body of the human being, that man's body is made in God's image. This is the distortion that you find in Mormonism. In Mormonism, God the Father, well, I'm going to use a small GF here, God the Father, and you'll always hear them talk about the Father. They have a really strange way of using that terminology. They always talk about Father, and it's a kind of an odd, and you'll hear them remember when the uh, young girl was kidnapped out, kidnapped out in Utah last year. If you listen to the parents talk about God, you could immediately pick up on this terminology. They referred always to God as Father. 
And uh, it was just kind of an odd, it, it was no definite article with it. It was always an anarthrous use of father. And, and if you know what you're listening to, you immediately click to the fact that, that they're Mormon. And I remember uh, making the comment within the first five minutes that whatever's happened here, it has something to do with Mormonism. And that is eventually what, what it turned out to be. So their idea is that God the Father is a, has a physical body. PB, physical body. And their big saying that you will hear them quote often, as man is, that is, as you are now, as man is, God once was. As God is, man one day shall be. In other words, God the Father in Mormonism is a bipedal hominoid who has physical procreation with a wife and produced the human race that way. And one day, and he advanced up that chain of being. See, Mormonism violates the creator-creature distinction. And what happens is in Mormonism, you can go up that chain of being and become a little god. And if you want to read an excellent expose of Mormonism, uh, there is a book out by Dave Hunt and uh, a co-author. And, oh, the name escapes me right now. Anybody here read, read that book? Um, uh, something it has little it has gods in the title. What? Yeah, the Godmakers. That's right, the Godmakers. And it's an excellent critique of Mormonism. And you would be amazed at what Mormonism really teaches. Most Mormons don't know it because they're not Temple Mormons. And the further you get into Mormonism, the more you learn about these things. But the, in Mormonism, you have this erasure of the creator-creature distinction. On the other hand. To avoid idolatry and the too heavy an emphasis on the material body, Christians have tended to restrict the image to just the invisible, to just the invisible or just the immaterial. Now, that's not right, and I want to take some time to show you why that's not right. But first, I want to give you a quote from a, a Dallas Seminary grad, John Pilkey. And John Pilkey, who teaches or did teach at one time at a Christian school on the West Coast, quite a brilliant man. He went through seminary with uh, Charlie Clough and George Meisinger, and I got to got turned on to some, uh, one of his books uh, through them. But Pilkey makes the observation: No one disputes that the image of God refers to conscience and reason. See, it primarily refers to these elements in the soul, primarily. But it doesn't exclude the material. That's what he's saying. No one disputes that the image of God refers to conscience and reason, but the view that this image has nothing to do with the body is profoundly erroneous because it implies that God in the creation failed to harmonize the form of the body with these faculties. The enemies of Christianity can sense the futility of this theological flaw and have exploited it with profound effect. If the form of the human body derives from any other source except divine faculties, then we might as well say that human form derives from purely causal causes, unrelated to the ideal mind of God. Darwinism is the logical result, namely, that God caused the animal and human forms to occur without regard to any dimension of his own essence. Now, the point that Pilkey is making is that when God's got his hand, so to speak, uh, down there in the clay, he's thinking about the fact that this 
immaterial image has got to express him through this physical body. And therefore, he's going to create a physical body that of all possible physical bodies will be the, give that soul the highest and best expression, knowing that in a few thousand years, the second person of the Trinity will incarnate himself in this body and be the highest possible expression, finite expression, of, a, of deity in history. And so the human body is not to be diminished. See, this is what happens if we make that second error of just emphasizing the soul, is it subtly begins to diminish the importance and significance of the physical body. And I don't have time to go into everything today, tonight, but we will next time. Is But I want to conclude by just giving you an overview. This never happens. The human soul never exists without a body. See, if the body's not important, then the human soul is going to exist just fine without it. But at death, you get an, a, an intermediate body. We know this, and we'll come back and look at it next time. In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following, which tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man, when Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom, the rich man dies and he goes to Tartarus, and when the rich man is burning in Tartarus, he says to Father Abraham, uh, let uh, Lazarus come over and dip his finger into the water so that he can put it on my tongue and refresh me. So that indicates that there's an intermediate body. The soul's not down there in some sort of uh, disembodied state. And then what happens? Then we get a resurrection body at the resurrection and at the rapture. And everyone eventually gets a resurrection body. And it is in a resurrected body that Jesus Christ runs the universe from the right hand of God the Father. We see that when Jesus became a we became incarnate, he had a human body. And we see the emphasis on that and the value of that body in, pa- in several passages, such as John 14.9, Colossians 2.9, and Hebrews 1.3. But 1 Corinthians 15 shows us that it is ultimately Jesus Christ who in his physical body is going to exercise the dominion that Adam lost in the garden. And it is expressed in terms of his resurrection body, in terms of his humanity, that he will reign, 1 Corinthians 15:25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, in other words, the subjection here is the fulfillment of the dominion mandate that fallen man can't fully fulfill, and only the God-man in his humanity, in his perfect humanity, can fulfill uh, eventually in the future. And it's an important point that we should understand here in terms of the body is that the Bible makes it clear that salvation isn't complete until you get a resurrection body. See, there's an importance to the body, the physical body, in Scripture. Salvation isn't complete. We talk about phase one salvation is justification. Phase two salvation is sanctification. Phase three salvation is glorification when you're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. But real glorification takes place when that your, your soul, which is with a 
an uh, uh, intermediate body is united with that resurrection body at the rapture. That's when salvation is complete. So this shows that there is an importance to the human body. So next time, we're going to come back, finish these uh, observations, and look at the makeup and nature of the soul because this helps us to understand true biblical psychology, not to be confused at all with uh, Freudian or modern uh, psychology, humanistic psychology, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the information you give us as it provides us uh, what we need to know in order to begin to study the creation around us and nature around us as it truly is as a creation uh, by you. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied and be challenged by them, be encouraged in our faith and our walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.